Shall I take your order, or do you need a minute? Yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah, now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. It's just, I want to point out to people that McCarthyism is the one time in American history that leftists were canceled, and it's 65 years later, and they're still uh, apoplectic about it. Good afternoon, Michael Malice here. Let that be your welcome for the next hour. We have a very special shitlord, edgelord, POS edition with both of us here. My returning guest is James Lindsay. James runs New Discourses. His most recent book is entitled Race Marxism, and he's maybe best known as co-author with Helen Pluckrose of Cynical Theories, uh, and recently banned from Twitter permanently. You are a modern-day Donald Trump. Are you going to join Troth Central? I did. Actually, um, I had to put something somewhere. Uh, so rip me. Um, I'm like, I got Kenobi'd. It's like they struck me down and I'm allegedly more powerful than ever, but I don't think it's actually working out like in the movie. Um, of course, Kenobi didn't do a damn thing after he got whacked, right? He like became like a ghost and he whispered in Luke's ear, use the force. And then the <laughs> torpedoes worked. But other than that, he didn't do anything else. So I feel kind of like that. Um, but yeah, I'm in permaban from Twitter. R.I.P. Uh, rest in power, James Lindsay, as you know. Um, I, so I, here my we are. understanding is, you, so I'm not saying this is a dig, uh, you weren't verified, and my understanding is if you had been verified, it might have saved you, because my understanding mm-hmm. is if verified people are banned from Twitter, Twitter HQ has to have a meeting about it. Like, it can't just be some one uh, um, person to kind of flick a switch. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize that the blue check had that level of superpower. Um, yeah. yeah, so... I was not verified. Uh, I applied for verification when they would, you know, let you grovel. And they told me, even though I met all the criteria, I, in their opinion, was not notable enough in oh. order to just be justified. Um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll verify, you know, some weird CCP agent with 12 followers that nobody's ever heard of, uh, or, you know, every journalist that's ever, you know, brushed by the Washington post. But, uh, here we are. Um, well, I, I, can from Twitter. Share, I can share in this trail of tears. Uh, not only am I not verified on Instagram, even though Rogan explicitly told him to verify me on his show, uh, you can't even search for me on Instagram. You have yeah, to same here. The, the whole name. Insta um, uh, rattles a saber at me. They just did like yesterday, and I couldn't even tell what they were mad about because they give you this thumbnail, and it's so small you can't actually yeah. see it, and you can't click on it to expand it so i've it was a bunch of words it was like some screenshot of text and they said that it violated the rules against hate speech i get one of those about every two weeks and they are always like this might be the last time and so i'm super shadow banned on instagram so that's why i'm not going to dump a bunch of effort into it of course yeah why Um, where uh, which people go what social media site if any should people go primarily to keep up with your latest uh, nonsense 
I mean, I'm primarily posting stuff. I, I, have, I have a team that aggregates everything that I do to all of the ones that I exist on, which is all of them except Twitter now. Um, I primarily post live on Truth because it's similar enough to Twitter and it makes it easy for them to uh, scalp what I've done and stick it other places. So I technically am active there. There's no direct messages there, so it makes it hard to get in touch with me. My YouTube channel still popping. Maybe I should start doing live streams or something or to talk to people. I don't know. Uh, but- I would highly recommend that. I do I do live streams. I haven't done it for a while as so I'm wrapping up my book and moved to Austin, but people really enjoy it. They get to ask you some good questions. You make some cash. Everyone wins. It's a great, it's a great, like as stupid as it sounds, it really is a wholesome way for people to entertain themselves. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, I crossed the the hundred K I got my, um, my little button thing over here by the, I, it's not on the wall. It's just sitting on my desk. Actually, I can grab it. I, they never mailed me mine. They never mailed me mine. Deal with I, it. Deal with it. I'm famous now. So yet, an- yet another piece of degradation. It, it, this is because I'm an immigrant. This is that's right. That, that'll teach you to be foreign. Um, <laughs> can you tell me how you found out you were banned and what your reaction was? Okay, this is really funny because I was, I know a lot of people that watch your show don't know this, but there's this place called Real Life that you can be out in. And I was there. I was in real life. I was actually. I don't believe you. <laughs> I was. I went to I a coffee shop, enough, which is a. I don't a, believe you. No, coffee shops are this antiquated object that exists okay, in real life go. where you can get a substance called coffee. And sometimes yeah, there's pastries and things. Whoa, whoa, let's slow down here. Twitter is in real life. Starbucks is. Yeah. Yeah. But, no, it wasn't Starbucks. It's a real local coffee shop. That's okay. actually a small locally owned business. Okay. Hipster next to shop. a park with an actual river in it. And we were out on the back patio by the river. It was really nice. Um, and so I met with some, some local officials who are, you know, school board and this kind of thing. And so I'm talking to them. Just time, what had happened was the weekend before I was in some godforsaken state like California or something. So I wasn't home to show up and not do anything. But there was a drag queen performance for children downtown in my hometown. And so I got on the phone when I got back from I think I was in California, really. Uh, I got on the phone and said, you know, can I talk to some people? So I got some people that are local, you know, officials. And I was like, well, what can, what can we do? Do you understand this issue? What are we going to do about it? And so I was having a real, real life meeting. And then I got in my car and I uh, had all these messages from people that were like, have you been banned from Twitter? And I'm like, I don't know, probably I got to drive. Cause in the real life, if you look at your phone while you're driving, you go into ditches or something and you can't do that. And so I drove home and my Twitter was behaving completely normally for like 20 minutes. So okay. I guess about an hour after I actually got banned, it was completely normal until I tried to, I think, open a direct message somebody had sent me. And the second I tried to open something, I got this like, you know, you have been permanently suspended from Twitter. I got no shot across the bow on this one. Okay. It was just, and then the email appeared. Um, in my, you know, it says you've been permanently suspended from Twitter. Here's the thing that did it. I took screenshots of this and I sent it to some people. Um, and now my Twitter feed for a little while, it had like stuff that it remembered that was kind of like, you might like those kind of suggested algorithmic posts. And now every time I open my Twitter, I still have access to my account, but I just can't do anything. It's my whole newsfeed is exactly one ad. 
It, it changes. It was a Google ad for a while. I don't know what it is right now. It's exactly one ad. But when I log, I open Twitter, if I open the app, it says, it gives me a warning. You have been permanently suspended. It asks me if I want to appeal. They only let you appeal once. And then you go into an infinite appeal loop. You click on, I would like to appeal. You fill out the form and then you push the button. And then it says that you can't do that. And you go into wow. this. And it says you have to go to the appeal page to appeal. So you click on the appeal page and guess which page it takes you to? The exact same page you started on. So my Twitter experience is a bit reduced. Um, as in, I go and I look at what's trending occasionally to see if anything interesting is happening. And otherwise, I don't open it. Now, the big mystery is that, you know, there's that little notification number on my direct message tab. I can't even see. I can't see anything in that tab. But that number keeps going up. <laughs> somebody sending me direct messages that are getting through somehow. And I can't, I don't know how that works. I can't open them. It's a real, like the whole thing is really janky, but I don't think I'm going to make it back on. Cause I appealed, but my appeal was really just telling them that they're terrible people. I yeah. just wrote, it took the, an opportunity to write them a letter saying that they're terrible people and that they should feel bad and reinstate my account. I don't really want my account back now, but um, they should because they, kept forcing me to confess to crimes I didn't commit, like calling people names or something is somehow a crime now, and to, to admit that I broke rules that are arbitrary and made up. And then the one they actually kicked me out for wasn't even a rule. They, like, made it up on the spot. I don't know if you know the story. No, I don't. Explain to people, okay. please. All right. So I was, I was doing the OK Groomer thing, as one does. Turns out in that Human Rights Campaign report, I was the number two OK Groomer impact person well, in the world what's this human rights campaign report and, and oh god so the human rights campaign teamed up with some godforsaken leftist organization but the Britain. human rights campaign people don't know despite the name is like a, a very prominent pro-gay rights organization that's right it's the one with the blue field with the yellow equal sign you've seen it yeah. i guarantee you you've seen it it's funny that it's hrc um so hrc listed the top 10 most impactful people who had said, okay, groomer by their organic reach on Twitter. And I was number two after Marjorie Taylor Greene and I beat out Lauren Boebert. So here we are. Um, it's like a remake of three's company. I know that's perfect. Could you imagine if it was me and Marjorie and Lauren and we had our own sitcom? Would that <laughs> not be the best sitcom, sitcom on TV? Big brother. It would be the best show ever. It would be the best show on television. Um, it would be awesome. James with two Congresswomen. And so, you know, they both got their guns. Who the hell knows what's going to happen next? It's going to be exciting. You could be Mr. Roper. We could do it in Austin. You could come by. Um, Let me look at that. I'm just going to be doing like this about you. Yeah, something like that. And so anyway, I was doing the OK Groomer thing, as one does. And they they did fire a shot across my bow for that. They kicked me out for 12 hours. OK. Because I called a trans person. Okay, groomer for some very groomery behavior. And um, what happened next was I got back on. They fired a second shot across my bow. I got the second lockout for the same offense, but with no time limit. That's what happens if they do. I, I call this a cascade, you know. So I was like, well, I know the writing is on the wall. Let's just go delete all the tweets where I called anybody a groomer proactively, so they can't nab me on that crap. So I actually did. I was at an event. I went to to Washington D.C. 
I'm in a ho- like fairly nice hotel in downtown DC, sitting there by myself one night at a conference instead of going and doing conferencings, deleting every single time I called somebody a groomer on Twitter. It turns out I had done so 600 and something times, almost 700 times. So it took a while. Oh, I can see the headline now. James Lindsay, James Lindsay deletes his groomer history from Twitter. <laughs> yeah, but it was, I mean, the best part, if they write this story, is I, f- I forgot that I had done this. There was a tweet where I had said, okay, groomer to Big Bird. Which I sat in that hotel room laughing for like 20, it de- delayed my progress because I just laughed and laughed and laughed. Wait a minute, he's not a groomer, he's a preener. Well, he was, he was, it turns out that was where I was adventuring, you know, around in new meanings of groomer. Okay. And he had pushed the vaccine. And I was like, <laughs> okay, groomer. <laughs> like, you know, an adult figure or whatever the hell Big Bird represents, encouraging children to stick things into their bodies. Groomer. Okay. That's a, that was my logic. One of but, my favorite tweets, by the way, I forget who this is and I apologize to them, said, we have to admit that if Big Bird was real, we'd kill him immediately. <laughs> that's, that's 100% true. That is 100% true. Oh my God. Well, I called him a groomer. And so... As it turns out, I deleted all those. So in a sense, I was like, okay, I understand your rule. I'm not going to do it anymore. But then I just, of course, went straight back to the same trans person. And I just found another appropriate tweet like immediately and wrote, okay, child sexualization specialist. (laughs) And they permanently banned me for that. Okay. Which makes me believe, I have no evidence of this, that the trans person in question must have some in that may or may not be sexual at at Twitter with somebody who has a switch flipping capacity. Because it's ridiculous. Wasn't there some lady, I forget her name, who was boasting about having gotten your scalp because she'd been mass reporting you for a long time? Let me correct you. The answer is kind of. There is a lady who happens to be a a man. It's a trans woman. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. The the name that it goes by is Alejandra. Okay. The original name that you're not allowed to say under any circumstances is Alejandro. Okay. Carabello. And so, yes, this person, in fact, like paraphrased or quoted from Game of Thrones, I just make sure James knows it was me or I just want James to know it was me or whatever that line from TV is. And it's like, you're so lame. Okay, fine. Like, okay, groomer. Like, I don't care. Um, and then it's, it, it's like I kicked off of Twitter for life. I wrote a appeal that wasn't an appeal. I don't think they're going to let me back on. Maybe if Elon ends up being forced to buy this dump, then I'll end up back on. But like I said, I feel like I got cold water splashed in my face. And I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, social media is ridiculous. Why are we doing this to ourselves? Well, let's and go. Twitter is like openly a communist organization, according to Project Veritas leaks. And then there, I don't know what kind of like intelligence community operation it is. And then it's estimated that it might be 60 to 80 percent bots like what the hell is this platform and why would anybody contribute to it um so i'm sort of like mystified now truth is marginally better so far but that's because the ic hasn't decided that it can colonize it for productive purposes yet i mean it's going to be like QAnon squared or something before long um once they figure out how to do that because we just got to trust the plan james 
Well, that's what I was doing. I was trying to trust the plan. And then the plan is more complicated than I realized, apparently, because now I'm not on Twitter anymore. Shall I take your order or do you need a minute? Yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah. Now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry. I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. Shall I take your order, or do you need a minute? Yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah, now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh yeah, uh, sorry, I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. Um, um, let's actually go back to something serious because you, you, you alluded to. You were saying yeah. you were meeting with local uh, politicians or, or, or leaders in your community talking about Drag Queen, uh, um, a show for kids, and telling them, do you not understand what's happening here? Can you explain from your perspective what it is that that's actually happening there? Yeah, I mean, I can actually explain from their perspective. They turns out they they wrote an academic paper. Actually, there's a few academic papers about Drag Queen Story Hour, but they one of the actual drag queens. When I say they, the they in question here are two people. One is an education scholar by the name of Harper Keenan, who is trans, and they make a big point of that in the paper. So that's the only reason I mention it. I don't give a single shit about that. And then the other author on the paper, I don't even know this person's name. The other author on the paper is, and I quote, Lil Miss Hot Mess, which is a drag queen pseudonym for some dude. I think he's in Arizona, but I'm not positive about that, um, who is one of the coordinators of the Drag Queen Story Hour program and has written the New York Times bestselling book. I don't know if it really sold that many copies uh, called The Hips on the Drag Queen Go Swish, Swish, Swish. and. So this person goes into schools and does this whole performance with children, this guy who goes by the name Lomas Hot Mess. And they wrote this paper saying that the perp- what the purpose of, of Drag Queen Story Hour is. Why are they bringing drag queens in front of children? And they call the paper drag pedagogy. So it's a theory of education based in drag. And the idea they tell you, I mean, I can actually list, they have five things. I have it on my desktop kind of at all times. I don't have a desktop. What am I talking about? My laptop at all times. Um, the last sentence I was just quoting from it. So it's actually on the last sentence, which is we're going to leave a trail of glitter in the carpet that you'll never get out. I'm not kidding. It says that, but it says that drag queen story offer or our offers early childhood educators away into a sense of queer imagination. Play is praxis, aesthetic transformation, strategic defiance. So they teach kids to break rules, destigmatization of shame and embodied kinship. And that's where they say that it's family friendly. And the paper they actually say in here, uh, Wait, it's in the I beginning. Destigmatization of shame is really a big one because yeah, all these are big. Well, the, the, that one is just off the top of my head because shame is the most useful mechanism to basically mandate social norms. If someone's yes. not ashamed of anything, and I say this is a pretty shameless person, if you're teaching kids not to be ashamed of anything, other than violence, pretty much anything goes. And that's like shitting on your floor, for example. 
Yeah, this is a horrifying paper. The next sentence it says, and this is the abstract, it says, ultimately, the authors propose that drag pedagogy provides a performative approach to queer pedagogy that is not simply about LGBT lives, but living queerly. And they put living queerly in italics. And so what it is, is it's an introduction for children to learn how to live queerly. That They say so themselves. And part of that, like you, you just pointed out, is that, you know, there's teaching strategic defiance. That's a that's a thing. Then there's the uh, destigmatizing shame. That's a big thing. And then there's this whole embodied kinship. They actually say in the section of the paper in the embodied kinship part that the point of Dry Queen Story Hour, they say that it's about selling empathy for LGBTQ kids. But in fact, they say that that's just a marketing strategy. As a matter of fact, that the point is to teach them alternate ways of living in alternate ways of conceiving of the family. And then they say in the paper here, at the beginning of the conclusion, it says that maybe that Drag Queen Story Hour is family friendly in the sense that it is accessible and inviting to families with children, but is less. this is less a sanitizing force than it is a preparatory introduction to alternate modes of kinship. Here, Drag Queen Story Hour is family friendly in the sense of family is an old school queer code to identify and connect with other queers on the street. So it's like, leave your family and join a queer cult on the street. That's what they say. We're going to have an alternate form of embodied kinship with drag queens, children and drag queens. I'm your daddy now. And so I was sharing the contents of this document with a handful of local leaders. And they were somewhat aghast. And, um, you know, they want to make sure this doesn't become a prominent feature locally. And they're trying to discover what legal avenues they have, um, recognizing that in you know, East Tennessee, generally speaking, you definitely want legal avenues to stop things that really piss people off. Um, and this one's re- like the number of calls that they had received, I guess that was a Friday and the thing had happened on the Saturday before. So six days, the number of calls they had received that week already from angry constituents that this occurred in the public park was, they said, uncharted, like just thousands of people angry people were calling and saying, do not let this happen in our community. And so I was like, well, let me make sure you understand what it's about. Um, it is not this in particular, I wanted to communicate to them. Here it is in black and white, them saying, you know, caring about LGBT concerns is a sales pitch. It is a marketing strategy, but in fact, there are other purposes and it's to teach living queerly, the idea of raising, they call it a generative approach to raising questions. Why are you a man dressed as a woman? And they'll reply things like, why does anybody have to dress any particular way, et cetera. And um, I just wanted local officials to be aware that this thing is, in their own words, um, a strategy to to create certain outcomes with children that people might find to be upsetting. Queer pedagogy, the idea that you're going to teach queer embodiment to children instead of say math at school might be, or reading, I guess, if it's story hour, is probably a little bit out of the the line of what most parents want or expect from sending their kids to school. It's it's really interesting because if you look at Twitter, which is not real life, I learned today, um, hmm. you will have a lot of these awful, affluent, wealthy female liberals who will tell you to their blue in their face, look, it's just someone reading a story, someone playing dress up, it's not like the kids are going to be assaulted, which is true. They're, I mean, they're, no one's going to be grabbing the kids from everybody else. But the fact is, I don't think conservatives have the receipts that you are just bringing that 
yeah, this is not a, they really do have an agenda and here the agenda is being uh, spelled out fairly explicitly. And, and no, they I, actually, they I, actually I say here too. that the very presence of the drag queen is, it, it doesn't matter what they read. The very presence of the drag queen is achieving the goal. They say the same book read by a regular teacher suddenly seems banal. When a drag queen reads a story, the technicolor has been turned on and the show has begun. And they go through again and again talking about how they juxtapose the drag queen as the exciting, fun character versus the boring, plain teacher in the administrative setting of the school, which is boring and, you know, not as exciting and the thing that you are not going to want to pay as much attention to. And then they're talking about embodied kinship where they're literally saying that the point is to draw people into a queer family that you find on the street as a point of comparison. And so the, it is not merely somebody coming in and reading a story. It is somebody performing a very particular role coming in and reading a story with a very particular purpose that at least in some cases will work or they wouldn't do it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very kind of, you know, I've been a drag fan for a long time because when I was in high school, I read Camille Paglia and she mm-hmm. was very, very pro-drag, but her version of it is just the sense of transgressive defiance, and it's obviously a very pro-adult uh, situation, and in the same way you wouldn't have a Chippendales dancer, you know, reading a story for kids. That would just be crazy, um, but it's kind of interesting, uh, to use a very bad term, that in the 30 years since, it's really gone into this uh, uh, um, direction, and it's kind of surprising to me I, I guess i shouldn't be surprised but uh it, it's just uh I, I i don't even know what to say uh hearing what you said reading that paper to be honest i i think it's just uh, i think most people are would find it very disquieting to put it mildly. i mean there's all these little like puns and double meanings and all this stuff and I, you know i also understand drag as an art form for adults that it actually is it does perform i think it's got its uh, a purpose it's actually valuable um in that kind of transgressive and humorous and kind of just raw adult entertainment the kind of thing that somebody you know probably not necessarily but mostly late at night would go to in kind of a burlesque right. place for this sort of you know transgressive you know performance and fine i don't have an issue with this but you know and this is a pun it turns out it's a pun but the this is in the first paragraph of this paper through this program remember we're talking about now children right through this program drag artists have channeled their penchant for playfully reading each other into filth into different forms of literacy promoting storytelling as integral to queer and trans communities as well as positioning queer and trans cultural forms as as valuable components of early childhood education we are guided by the following question. Why, what might Drag Queen Story Hour offer educators as a way of bringing queer ways of knowing and being into the education of young children? Reading each other into filth with children in the kindergarten classroom or the third grade classroom or the school library seems to be very clearly, in my opinion, a bridge way too far. Well, um, reading to filth just means talking shit. Well, I know that, but but they also say to bring queer ways of being and living to the no, children. It's the thing is, there's no reason for some an adult to be talking shit to children. They actually talk about how that they like one of the things that they're going to do is talk shit to the children. Is that the children are going to ask questions and they're going to snap back because they're going to teach them that the drag performance is about the drag queen. <laughs> they're the center of the show. They say that too. It's the most insane thing I've ever seen written. And, and 
it's not on its own. I mean, I've seen some crazy shit written, but in the fact of it being published, not just in, an, in a, so, oh, it's some fringe academic journal. No, it's in Curriculum Inquiry, which is the biggest curriculum journal in education. It is a humongous, very famous journal. It is the journal in which um, some of the most important papers in uh, kind of the development of, of education theory in the past 50 years have been written and published. And then this they published at the beginning of 2021, uh, this drag pedagogy paper. And so why? Yeah. So we're going to bring a character in to talk shit to your kids while reading them into, uh, you know, queer ways of living or queer ways of being. Which, you know, I get their argument that there might be uh, their sales pitch argument that there might be a few kids out there who are going to get missed if they don't have something like a role model to say, well, they're different. I can be different, too. It's OK. You know, when Dan Savage used to say stuff like it gets better, they shit all over that. Not in this paper, but in other papers, they really don't like it gets better. They don't want a message of strength and resilience going to the potentially queer kids. Um, they don't want that at all. But I, I get that. But the idea that you're going to broadcast, that's like, I mean, if you've studied anything in medicine, and I don't know if you've ever done this, I used to teach statistics, so it came up there. I didn't study medicine. But there's this whole thing about how you don't like universally cancer screen, or you don't universally give somebody a drug treatment to that could cure some problem. And there, a lot of people don't understand why you don't universally cancer screen. But one of the reasons, simple statistical reason is false positives. The false positive rate is not zero. And if you test everybody, you're going to find actually more false positives than there are real positives. And this is a funny little statistical paradox. And so now you have convinced millions of people that they have cancer who don't have cancer. And at the least, you freak them out and stress them out. But at, at the worst, you end up feeding them chemotherapy or radiation that they didn't need. There are other medical reasons as well. M many cancers resolve on their own, uh, but would be detectable and they're not a need. They don't require any intervention. So screening everybody for cancer actually creates this huge problem. This is in a sense like screening everybody for gay. And yeah, their, their attempt to completely shut down missing somebody, which would be like a type one error or something like that, or a type two error, whichever one it is, they're neglecting to pay attention to the fact that it creates the other kind of error in large numbers uh, to make sure there are zero negative false negatives. You end up creating a humongous number of false positives and or vice versa. And this trade off is something that, you know, these we'll just say that we'll just suggest that the majority of of social science inclined humanities people are not drag queens, maybe are not particularly statistically literate uh, individuals. It's in fact, kind of a well-known, well-documented character trait is that these people tend to be medium high intelligence, rhetorically savvy and mathematically ignorant. Uh, in fact, just mathematically enumerate. And so the idea that you're going to screen kids for gay by sending drag queen, like the drag queens in to talk shit and teach them to embrace an alternate family like that's alarming so this you know we this tied into me getting banned from twitter but you can kind of see why i'm using i read this paper and i'm like okay groomer like what word do you use for this phenomenon when they say that their point is to induce children into queer ways of being and living oh should we start this show yeah i'm down just buying a car in carvana first for real? Yeah, it's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do is answer a few questions. Ooh, that's helpful. And now just customizing my down and monthly payments. Ooh, that's a very fair deal. Yep. 
Boom! Just bought a car, and you get to take me to the Carvana vending machine in a couple days to pick it up. Ooh! I'm kind of busy. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Yep. Shall I take your order, or do you need a minute? Yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah. Now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. Children, as a matter of fact. So let me see if I can approach this from the left perspective and hear your response to this. Okay. Doesn't this demonstrate that once queer spaces such as gay bars have become destigmatized, and become colonized by white women that had had the effect of both ruining queer performances such as drag and also ruining children. Yeah, so that's co-optation. What's that? That's been co-opted. That's but right. I mean, th they would actually make that argument. That's that's but one it, of the things that they. Well, they they have this whole concept of homonormativity, and they say that's one of the reasons that you have to worry about making uh, homosexual normative. Like some people are gay, get over it rather than making sure that it stays a repository for queer energy. So this is actually kind of the central thrust of queer theory. And so um, are they wrong? Uh, it's a weird way of looking at the situation, but within the context of like the way they analyze everything. Um, no, it's exactly right. That's exactly what the theory would say. And that's sort of what's happened. I don't know I mean, that that's the best way to, to frame it, but that's how they would frame it. I'll just put it this way. Uh, I know it's probably still controversial to say this, but homosexual people tend to have fewer children than heterosexual people. No one's th – these drag queens and organizers – Has anybody figured out why? It, I mean, it probably has it, to do with – They're probably socially constructed not to have kids or something. I mean, it has to do with slavery to some extent, obviously. But I, I, what I'm saying is these organizers and drag queens don't have guns to the heads of these moms. These classes or whatever these events are not mandatory. So someone's bringing the kids there. Well, there, I don't, this is, there are two things. Um, the events that is a hundred percent correct. Like the thing that we saw in, what was it? Dallas, whereas it ain't going to lick itself was on the wall or whatever. Right. And the poor kids, and this is like literally like a strip tease, drag strip tease, which is not story hour. Um, right. I don't know what the policies are around drag queen story hour happening as a curricular element in schools. That might actually be a captive audience where you send your okay. kids to school and that's what's happening at school. And that's probably going to depend on the specific school um, as I to whether not or not opt in all. or opt out. I did but not Dry Queen Story Hour happens at schools. Um, and I don't know the degree to which it's happening as a matter of curriculum, as a matter of um, it's a thing that's happening and kids have to opt in or if they can opt out or if, I mean, technically you can opt out of just about anything if your parents are aware of it and write it's the letter. It's not the same as, as default opting in, obviously. Correct. And so I don't know what the story is with it in terms of its actual implementation in schools, but there are people bringing their kids to this uh, for certain at like the bar, which <laughs> taking your kid to the bar is already a little weird, but um there are definitely parents that are, are doing this. And I actually conceive of this. What I, what I conceive of this is, is like inclusion gone pathological. I think of like growing up in the nineties and I, I call this actually the boogeyman, right. Of one of the boogeyman of the nineties. And I say that the boogeyman has grown up and this explanation is, you know, a lot of us grew up in the nineties and we had this kind of archetype fed to us of the conservative 
probably looks like Matt Walsh, but manlier. Um, but you know, actually manly, uh, beard, flannel. What is a man? The whole thing. Yeah. Um, where, you know, who, who disowned his gay kids. Right. Right. And that was like the archetype of exclusion for the nineties kid. And those nineties kids have grown up and they have the children. And so there's almost like this weird overcompensation of like proving how inclusive they are. I'm so inclusive. Not only will I not disown my kid if they happen to be gay, I'll take them to a drag strip tease right. where we're going to stuff money in the G string of a man prancing around like a sexual woman or, or, you know, I'm going to encourage the transition of my child or I'm going to raise my child without a gender because some crackpot theory said that that's what inclusion means. And so there's almost this desperation to prove your yes. bona fides and inclusiveness. And I think it's actually an overcompensatory reaction to that that, you know, archetype of exclusion that was fed to us on this particular issue in the 90s. Uh, or, I mean, it, it had a degree of reality. I knew people who were like, no son of mine. Oh, <laughs> computer. Of I knew people like that for sure. And so there was enough reality to it to where, um, I mean, I remember having in college discussions with my friends like, what would you do if your son was gay? We were talking through it. I mean, it's kind of like this whole social constructionist, uh, you know, wet dream sitcom scene like we're sitting around the college dudes in the apartment after we went out and like did our as you can picture like a 90s tv show we went and ran around campus got it gotten you know our workout in we come back and we sit down and what would you do if you had a gay son well i don't know it'd be really stressful for me well you know what i would accept them no matter what you know it's this whole like you can picture the dramatic reproduction of this um but i think that there's a lot of awfuls in particular that are just massively overcompensating they're not just they're not actually being inclusive. They're like trying to perform inclusivity to the point where they're doing like child abuse. Well, maybe this is their only chance to get a, a like a male figure in their kids' lives. Well, maybe it's also maybe their only way to go to inclusion heaven. I don't know. Um, but I feel like that's kind of the vibe of what's happening here is that there's inclusive heaven that you can only get in by, you know, cutting your kids' breasts off. You know what's going to happen in 10 years is that all these kids who got raised on 4chan are going to disown their parents when their parents come out as non-binary. Yeah, that's true. It's going to happen. It's happen. absolutely going to happen. Uh, um, let's talk about this. Um, uh, did, uh, see, the thing is, there was a thread on Twitter that I wanted to talk to you about because you're in a unique position to reverse engineer it. Okay. Uh, Cliff's Notes. There was an, a black woman who was a curator of a art exhibition of Basquiat. There was some drama with it. Uh, now, recently, a journalist was going to write a piece about it and asked her for comment. And she had this whole tweet thread telling her to go F herself. And how dare you ask me for comment when you're writing an article about me? And the reporter is very much like, no, no, I want your perspective. Please tell me. And it's like, how dare you as a white woman appropriate and ceasing her boss. And this is the Atlantic, by the way. This isn't exactly like, <laughs> uh, like, uh, like Amran or something. So I want to read you one email in this tweet thread because it's written such jargon that I think a lot of people reading are like, this person's crazy. And that is not uh, on the, in dispute. But this thing is she's still using their language in a specific way that I think, you know, when I wrote my book on North Korea, people were dismissing it as crazy. It's like, sure, it's crazy, but internally it has a coherent logic to it. Mm -hmm. And it's very 
very important for people to be able to kind of parse what they're saying and how they're evoking language to dominate and influence others. So let me get this piece. There was this one specific um, article. Uh, um, oh, here we go. Oh, this is where it was. Okay. Um, so basically, the the journalist just goes, "Dear." Chadria, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing her name wrong. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic, and I'm writing about U.S. museums and the racial reckoning of 2020. I plan to discuss your experience at the Guggenheim. Might we talk? And then she gives her email address and says, best wishes. So she replies with, go F yourself, like literally go F yourself, uh, uh, so on and so forth. But um, let me let me see. There's no, there's a second one where she talks about the um, – uh, then she doubles down. She goes, hey, hey. I know you don't want to talk to me, but your perspective is important. Uh, you know, I want to quote you correctly. Then she really goes insane. I want to be clear with you as well. I plan to publish this correspondence, blah, 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 blah. Um, I know for a fact that a woman of color pitched the Atlantic years prior about this, and they rejected her story. In due time, she will speak about this experience because it's while it's not my story to tell, it's pretty disgusting and bad faith journalism to then allow a white woman to recoup the story. Can you explain what that means? Oh, yeah. I thought this was going to be an epistemic exploitation story. And it that's the go F yourself part where, you know, how dare you come ask me for my perspective? See, that's Marx's theory of exploitation just transformed into the, the cultural realm. See, you have black people producing cultural things and then white people want them to explain those things. So you're exploiting them and actually stealing their identity from them. And that kind of ties into that. So this is actually what's happening is that this, it's not specifically epistemic exploitation. What's happened is there's this woman, this black woman who wrote this story, wrote it to the Atlantic. The Atlantic said no. She's still wounded and pissed off that they didn't publish her story. And now a white woman's going to publish a similar story. And so something that was originally a black woman's story is going to be get to get told by a white woman, which means that the black woman yet again has had her work ripped off from her. Now, in a, in a Marxist frame, which a lot of people don't accept yet that this is a Marxist kind of worldview because it doesn't talk about economics. It's cultural economics is actually what it boils down to, though. What you have is that you have a producer who comes to understand themselves as who they are in order through their like cultural production, the black people come to understand themselves through cultural production of blackness. And when white people don't accept that, but then they reproduce the same thing, what they're actually doing is whitewashing that black perspective and making it acceptable to the white majority. So, so what it, would, it is, it's a form of, it's a form of cultural theft. Yeah, as they see it, and, a, and thus a form of cultural exploitation. So what happens is that the black person ends up alienated from themselves, as Marx would have it. You know, Marx says that the reason that you do your work is that you envision what you want to create in the world, and you create it, and you see yourself as somebody who created that, as a creator. And so what's happening here is black people, when they try to create, they write this story, they're not included. But when a white woman decides to create it, they're allowed. So there's this bourgeois versus uh, proletariat kind of or working class kind of split. We're not actually interested in your stuff, but we know you're producing something of value. So we're going to launder it through our white lens, make it acceptable to our white publication for our mostly white audience, blah, blah, blah. And sorry about your luck that we didn't publish you. No credentials for you. And maybe we'll buy you off. And here's some abstract thing like money to send you away. You know, we'll come buy your 
your cultural products and give you money. But what we're actually going to do is transform them into something like rock and roll or, you know, some new art form that white people like and exclude you from that, which would allow you to see yourself as who you are. So it all comes back to, to estrangement and alienation through the appropriation of property. And so by taking that story away from a black person, the white person is estranging blacks from the ability to tell their own stories and is saying that really only white people are the authentic storytellers or the appropriate storytellers. Black people have interesting stories, but we have to filter them through the white lens in order to tell them. So it'd be like, you know, 1870 or whatever, a British guy taking an expedition to Delhi and coming back and he's going to tell everybody what, what India is like. And he's going to call them savages every three words or whatever, you know, and then the savages did this and the savages said that. And so, you know, you can understand kind of in that more extreme situation what's going on. But I mean, that's the explanation. If you want just the explanation, what was actually happening is somebody's very entitled and is pitching a fit. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's kind of interesting because as I one came, does, I'm glad I parsed it the same way you just explained it to me at length. Because I had tweeted out that, you know, it's it's going to be not that long. If you think it's crazy to say that a white journalist can't tell a black woman's story, uh, five minutes ago, if I said white people can't do voices for cartoon characters of other races, you would have thought that was crazy too. It's a cartoon. This person doesn't exist. But now that's become the norm that it's racist for a white person to do the voice of non-white characters in different cartoons. And you have to have uh, um, voice actors that... I don't know if they have to match the race. I think a black person can do an Asian character, but a yeah, white yeah. they can go the other way. They can go the opposite direction. Ideally, I think they would match, but they can go the other direction for sure. And then not even ideally, because if that's transgressive in some way to do it, then that's to be encouraged as well. Uh, but yeah, you, you, you've parsed it correctly. If that, that's really what it is. And you are right. People don't understand that as, as ridiculous or crazy or whatever, as all this not only appears, but actually is, um, and that it comes from a kind of deeply wounded narcissism um, that turns into a political project. That's all fine and correct, but there is an internal logic. Like these yes. people are not acting in an insane way. They have adopted an insane ideology, which is not quite the same thing. They're not a crazy person. They are a sane person that's taught to think in a crazy way, which is a very different animal. In fact, it's a much more dangerous animal. Yeah, and it's also because... If I have, if you and I are both crazy, and if, like I think I'm Abe Lincoln, you think you're from Neptune, you and I would regard each other as crazy and would easily see the delusions through what you are saying. But if you and I are trained in the same crazy ideology, it would be very easy for us to have a conversation that a third person can understand, but also to work together if necessary, because we are speaking the same language and we'd be able to finish other sentences in a sense. Yeah, oh, absolutely. There isn't a single person that's been trained in this ideology that doesn't understand immediately what they're looking at there and why it's valid, et cetera. Um, they could finish each other's sentences. As a, as a matter of fact, it's because it's cult logic. It's actually a very simple logic. And so they really could finish each other's sentences because there's really only one right answer to every question under any cult logic, uh, whether it's this, whether it's North Korea. Um, this is what this boils down to is it's a cult logic, not occult, like occult. It is a cult logic. And the cult here has has bought into a particular mode of analyzing the world, which boils down to that property, either material or cultural, somehow uh, in its appropriations, shapes our material existence. 
and our psychic existence and who we are. In fact, what a lot of people don't realize, you know, they, they try to fight back against this by pulling up Martin Luther King and they say, well, Martin Luther King said he has a dream, you know, and then he said, we're going to judge by the contents of character, not the color of skin. And what they don't recognize is that within the cult doctrine, the color of skin determines the content of character because of a, they have a doctrine, a name for this doctrine is structural determinism. And so who you are is determined by your interactions with the power dynamics that are imposed upon you. You don't get to choose them. You don't get to choose to rise above them. They are imposed upon you by the fact of the stratification of society and the ideology that's promoted in order to maintain that. In this case, a race stratification is upheld by an ideology of white supremacy that doesn't look very much like the KKK. That's just one very blatant manifestation of that ideology. It is, in fact, the same ideology that says that the white woman gets to write the story, not the black woman who had her story rejected, which might have been rejected for any number of reasons, including when she told the story two or three years ago, it wasn't interesting enough for publication in the Atlantic. Yeah, she might also have been a terrible writer. Which, what a shock, if that is the case. Like, I read so many of these papers and documents and... Shall I take your order, or do you need a minute? Yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah, now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. It's like, who wrote this? Like, are you kidding me? Um, so there was also a piece on you from the Daily Beast written by Anthony Fisher, who uh, I was buddies with, and I'm, I'm kind of surprised how aggressive a tone he's taken. Um, and I wanted to break down a few of the accusations he's made against you and hear your thoughts. Because the headline says, the band, okay, groomer guy, James Lindsay, is not a free speech martyr. And the tag to it is literally a McCarthyite. So let's get that one out of the way first, because he does. So he had a quote, he says, that you're a far-right bigot who thinks Senator Joe McCarthy, quote, had it right, and quote, didn't go nearly far enough, end quote, during his infamous and now universally repudiated witch hunts of suspected communists during the 1950s. How is that incorrect? Well, it's a combination of two things that I said. At one point, I said that McCarthy had it right, speaking generally that communists had infiltrated many of our cultural and uh, political institutions, which is correct. But the, the thing that he's mashed that together with with the hasn't gone far enough is I actually said McCarthy was wrong and should be repudiated. He didn't go nearly far enough because he didn't succeed in getting the communists out of those institutions. Um, not to say that everything, this is why I think he was, he's being a little unfair to put it mildly. And everyone knows this, who knows this issue, the house on American activities was in the house. McCarthy was in the Senate. So even if James, if uh, Senator McCarthy, Joe McCarthy was completely full of it and just making completely irresponsible accusations, which many people do agree with, that does not at all mean that what happened at the House on American Activities was either valid or invalid. It's a separate phenomenon, even though you might want to broadly call it under the umbrella of McCarthyism and it preceded McCarthyism. That's right. The, uh, I, I really think it's hilarious how often I hear people say who have just like, they don't just, they don't, they don't just know McCarthy but they know just that one centimeter more and put it in metric so that it's less. And so they know that one centimeter more of the detail. And they're like, Joseph McCarthy, 
and no Senator McCarthy and the House on American Activities Committee. And it's like, do you realize that those literally are separate phenomena? They are in yeah. different chambers. Like, okay, but no. Um, the the fact of the matter was that he was right in what he was accusing. I don't know that he was right in his methods. Um, I'm honestly too ignorant of the specific circumstances to know where I think he would have gone right and gone wrong. But he was certainly correct that this infiltration had happened, that it happened in a widespread fashion, and that it was uh, necessary for the health and future of this country to do something about it. And in fact, to try to take these cultural subverters out of those positions of authority and influence, because one of the things that they will do, of course, is entryist um, uh, recruitment. They'll make sure more of their own get into positions like theirs. And so, If you want to accuse me, if he wants to accuse me of being a McCarthyite in that sense, um, I'm kind of proud to wear that. Uh, I'm not even sure how much of with anything that that has to do with the kind of communist issue. It's very difficult to parse what is like, you know, if we're like, oh, that's really bad. The communist, you know, Joseph McCarthy, that's really bad. It's hard to parse how much of that's real and how much of that was a communist psyops to make sure that we don't look at communists and what they're doing. And so, you know. You can't really, and I guess it works on other people, but you can't invoke that as a boogeyman against me and have me quail before it. I have, whether McCarthy did it right or not, I do not want very many communists in positions of power and authority in institutions that matter because they only do one thing, which is subvert them. And then when they take power, they abuse power because everything they tell you about how power is abusive, what they're actually telling you is that's how they think the world works. So that's exactly how they're going to behave when they get power. And it's always abusive. Um, so it's just better for everybody, including them, frankly, that they not have power. It's uh, just I want to point out to people that McCarthyism is the one time in American history that leftists were canceled. And it's 65 years later and they're still uh, apoplectic about it. Oh, yeah. They're still flipping out about it. I thought you were against cancel culture. Right, right. <laughs> so let, let's talk about some of the other things in this. So he goes, he calls you a big lie espousing vaccine denying far right bigot um well, those are, I, that's I, all just self-contradictory hold on hold on Let me just break it down. first of all he's doing the jenga bad things where he stacks up these pejoratives and therefore builds this kind of edifice to you as evil um i the, i really am very uncomfortable as a jewish person and i'm not joking at all that this term big lie uh which was you know used to foment the holocaust is being used by donald trump denying that he lost the election to have some kind of any kind of equivocation between these two if you had any concern, sincere concern about genocide and othering people and marginalizing them, doesn't even get the genocide, even just like Jim Crow and just any kind of oppression, marginalization to to bring that into this, that at worst, you have some narcissistic asshole who can't accept he lost to equate those two things is so uh, beyond the pale for me that it's just like, since I'm someone who likes to offer me tongue in cheek, it's hard for me to say something like this with a straight face because it should be so obvious to everybody, in my opinion. No, I I hear you. Um, I'm dying inside laughing about big lie vaccine denying, like literally back to back there though. I'm just having a really hard time seeing those words and not like, I mean, with all respect to what you just said, but the idea that, you know, vaccine denial is somehow being accepted some gigantic lie. Um, I'm highly skeptical of that thing. You know, I, you know, there's things coming out now that are going to make that age badly. And apparently, I'm some kind of a bigot. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, 
I don't think that's actually true, but let's say that it's true. So what? What's the quality of my argument? Right. Um, I It's not true. I, I literally have no problem with anybody and don't care. Actually, that my biggest problem, my bigotry is that I am like, is there a form of bigotry that's like um, apathetic bigotry? Like, I just don't give a shit. Like well, that, that literally is the basis of their worldview, because if you don't care enough about racism, uh, you are a more dangerous racist. And that kind of makes a sense in a way. Like if if you're in a school, uh, this is how I broke it down on Tom Wood show. It's a show no one listens to. But if you're like a teacher and there is a school shooter like actively going on. And your response is to acknowledge it, but just close the door. Like you're really making the problem much worse. So from your perspective, since racism is this pervasive existential threat, and if you just acknowledge it and you're just like not prejudiced people in your day-to-day life, you're really doing nothing while this monster is rampaging around with the kids. Right. But it's not racism that I'm ambivalent to. It's race that I'm ambivalent to. And they think that one follows from the other. Well, if you don't care about race, that means you don't care about racism. It's like, no, you can actually see that somebody's being bigoted and be like, dude, that's not okay. Um, while simultaneously not caring if the person that you're talking to or dealing with or hanging out with or you know doing business with or whatever it happens to be, happens to be a particular skin color, a particular ethnic origin, a particular uh, you know sexual orientation. It's like I actually just don't, care so here's like, a, he has a bunch of these screenshots um one is of, of like things your bangers he calls them uh one yeah. is of you arguing with the auschwitz memorials twitter accounts of atrocities such as temporary covid vaccine mandates do you remember that situation yeah sort of i mean i remember call, i remember the people remember it for sure because i get it dragged up all the time I think that the vaccine mandate was a crime against humanity. Wait, can I leave expl- your quote so you can so people have context? Yeah, that'll help me too. Yeah, you tell them the Auschwitz Memorial um, that don't talk to me about moral decay when you stand on the side that will repeat the atrocities you claim should happen never again unless men like me can prevent them. Don't you dare! That's what you said. Oh yeah, that is right. Well, it's because I think that the vaccine is a crime against humanity. The no, sorry, not the vaccine. The vaccine mandates. Were a crime against humanity, and they were supporting that, uh, as far as I understood. And so then they like I, I had tweeted something about it, and then I think they came after me, if I remember yes, correctly. They came after you by saying exploiting the tragedy of Jews who humiliated Mark the Yellow Star, isolated, starved, dehumanized, and murdered in ghettos during the Holocaust and the debate of vaccination that saves human lives during pandemic is shameful. It's a sad symptom of moral decay. I want to give people full context. I was also not part of this debate between you two, but I got into shit for a tweet I said as a Jewish person who went to yeshiva. I said, if you exp- exp- uh, it replaced the word coronavirus with Jews, the behavior of 1930s Germany just becomes a lot more clearer, um, yeah. by which I'd meant, and it, it seemed pretty obvious at the time what I meant, is that one of the big questions historically is how did the German people, which had some anti-Semitism or hardly any kind of level of genocidal hatred or indifference to genocide, had that switch happen in such a short period. Like that's a very massive cultural shift. And the point is the coronavirus situation showed how swiftly and quickly people can view their neighbors, literal neighbors who they would happily take the mail in or whatever, and now view them with, I hope they die and say it publicly. Yeah. Let me add some more context to you, by the way, take at any point when you get a chance, go into the Twitter search bar for the Auschwitz Museum or whatever, and type in some segment of that text, that's copy pasta. It turns out they go after everybody that 
goes wow. too close to this issue with. I didn't know that at the time. I just was like, you know, I get a push notification because it's a verified account that the Auschwitz Museum has called me out. And I'm like, oh, hell no, you aren't. And so, like, I didn't start it. I didn't go looking for trouble, but I did compare uh, as you did. I mean, it's very, it's very similar. I mean, I think I might have even mentioned, I don't remember when, I know I've mentioned in the past, the Gesundheit Pass that the, the Nazis issued, this public health pass. It was a COVID passport, but it wasn't for COVID. It was for you know, whatever else they were accusing. And of course they said that the, um, that the Jews were the spreaders of the disease or of different diseases, typhus, I think in particular. Uh, and so they were passing, uh, offering a health pass in order. And they of course wouldn't give it to Jews. And then that was a excuse by which they were able to limit their access to the full participation in society in kind of the earlier stages. We were literally doing that. I mean, yeah. we were literally excluding people from restaurants, excluding people from full participation society, excluding people from travel. Did Djokovic play in the U.S. Open? No. Why? No Gesundheit pass. And it's like there are there are uncanny. It's not to say that it's the same thing. Nobody's scapegoating like that there's a pandemic of the unvaccinated or anything. Um, it's not to say that it's the same thing, but there are some concerning it's like it's like you're watching a movie you've seen before and you really hope that there's a pivot yeah at some point where it goes a different direction but it's like the lead-up footage is kind of the same story and uh it's very concerning and i say that with all due respect i understand that this was in in many the holocaust was in in most respects a singular atrocious act in terms of what it represented and why it occurred and and what it what it did i don't diminish that of course in any way whatsoever but the it's like we should learn from history and it's like this level of demonization and saying that there are unhealthy people who need to be excluded from society and they cause all of our problems uh, this is this is not a road i don't know where it leads in this case it looks like the covid thing has largely fallen apart for them uh thankfully but um that's not a road that leads anywhere good uh and to draw those parallels, I think was a perfectly legitimate use of speech. And so then if I would know, had known that they had come after me with copy pasta, I would have made fun of them for copy pasta instead. And this wouldn't be a drama. People love to drag that up. I actually just gave a talk in, in Bakersfield at Bakersfield College in California. And the faculty dragged up exactly, actually they, they used this article as an exam, as a proof of why I shouldn't be invited on campus. Guess what? I got invited anyway. Uh, so, but they, they dragged up this article. And so we, we were just talking about it. And I was like, I love the cover image for that article. I actually want to get a copy of it like in high resolution so I can print it. And maybe I'll get rid of my map and put a giant picture of my own head with Twitter birds all over it uh, behind me instead. Um, so it's really here, funny though. Here's one where he came after you, which I, I think what you're saying is pretty transparent, but I still want to hear you say it. There was a Air Force recruiting tweet uh, from the official USA <laughs> Air Force recruiting and it had a bunch of people running, holding behind them on a pole uh, the pride flag, the old pride flag, pre re uh, reject modernity, pre preserve tradition. Um, and it says pride in all who serve. And you quote tweeted it and said, carrying the flag of a hostile enemy in the military, shame. Yeah, totally. Um, so it's beyond any doubt that what's happening when you have, I mean, they, there's this, this phenomenon we could call it LGBT nation or something. I think there's actually like a website called that or something like that, that identifies as kind of as ethnic force. Uh, 
that is very blatantly got its own flag, its own identity, its own culture, and it is colonizing our institutions. So when I see acts like this, again, I hearken back to our 1870s British explorer or whatever who's gone off to, to Delhi, and what's he flying is a Union Jack, and what's he doing? He's walking into a barbershop or whatever and like sticking the Union Jack on the wall, like, you're going to fly this or we're going to shut you down. And it's the pride flag. Now, when you put it in the military, so this is a hostile colonization. It's just kind of a, instead of aggressive, it's a passive aggressive kind of like slapping little, uh, you know, you're going to do this or we're going to give you a bad PR campaign. We're going to extort you into this through public relations and everything else. It's like, it's a very, uh, well, it, the Puerto Rican flag parade or whatever it was in the Seinfeld. You wear the ribbon. I'm not wearing the ribbon. I'm not going to wear the ribbon. You wear the ribbon. You know, the whole thing. And they're all beating up Kramer because he's not wearing the ribbon, but it's the pride flag. So this is a colonization effort. That is a hostile force because it has its own agendas. And when you start to go to the point where you're literally replacing a national symbol in the military, I've got a problem. As a matter of fact, I've, I don't even think like, let's say that the people in the, and I wouldn't have called it a hostile enemy. But if the I would have called out if the picture had been exactly the same and they'd been carrying the thin blue line flag, which is an American flag turned black and white with a blue stripe on one of the the first stripe below the the field of stars is blue. The thin blue line flag. We all know it represents the police. Or, or the a, Gadsden the flag. Or the yeah, or the Gadsden flag. But even those, I would have said that's not the American flag. The only flags I think that they should be flying would be the American flag, which is the obvious choice because they're the U.S. military. I would allow for, if there is, I don't even know, I mean, there must be an Air Force flag because it's the Air Force sure. or the POW flag because we generally accept that the POW flag and the military and the government kind of go hand in hand. And that's a show of certain respect. The pride flag, thin blue line, Confederate flag, Gadsden flag, Ukrainian flag, no, you're the United States military. It's not appropriate. But the fact of the matter is, like, these flags are being foisted on everything. This is the activity of a colonizing force. Like, it's funny that these people who've studied colonization so much seem to not be able to recognize it when they're the ones doing the colonization. Well, it's colonized. Well, in, I'm, I'm going to make their argument, which is colonization is something bad people do. And since they're good people, by definition, they're not colonizers. <laughs> yes, that is that their is argument, the of course. That is the logic. That's 100% the logic. So, I, I mean, it's like I, when I was doing my book on North Korea and, and they were criticized by the UN, I think it was the Human Rights Council, don't quote me on that, about their concentration camps. The response literally was, we don't use that term, so we don't have them. Hmm. And that's, it's, there you go, QED. There's the, that's, that's what they call the science these days. <laughs> but you should trust it. It's like with ESG that they're, you know, it's coming out that it's violating fiduciary responsibility. So they're saying, you know, no, actually, fiduciary responsibility means not pissing off the regime, which will shut you down. So, right. so you have to be ESG compliant to have fiduciary responsibility. James, we're out of time. What has been your favorite part of this interview? Uh, you know, dude. That whole beginning part where we're just like cracking up about getting kicked off of Twitter was really a highlight of my day. I'm not going to lie. I love it. Um, I think it was a, a really good fun making fun of this preposterous situation that we find ourselves in. Normally, we come on these podcasts and it's all explain this and serious that. and blah, blah. We had our serious. We talked about the drag queens very seriously. But just love to laugh, man. It was great. Favorite part of the interview is all that cracking up. You are welcome. <laughs>